0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the all-new FFS show, a podcast about misinformation back for 2022. I am your host, Ali Bryan, and with me, as always, is my fellow host, Sam Gonzalez. How are you doing, Sam?
1: Hello, I'm good. Uh, Everything is so fresh and so new, new season. Mm. Did you enjoy my new music? It is uh, only the anthem of the summer to come. It's the post-pandemic dance anthem, and I'm excited for it to be... Played everywhere, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll be hearing that all the, in all the big nightclubs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what's the,
0: I don't go to nightclubs, but I will shoot that no.
1: What's the Limmy tweet that's like... Yeah,
0: yeah, sound of the summer. Sound, sound of the, of the
1: summer, summer. summer, sound of the summer, yeah. That way.
0: <laughs> so, back for uh, a new season, should we call it, of the FFS Show podcast.
1: New season. You know, we've, we've talked about this, but it's like the podcast was a year old. It kind of started mm. at the beginning of 2021, it and did, now yeah. we're in. new year, new season, new shape, new format, everything. Mm. Same old pandemic. Same old Uh, pandemic, same uh, old hosts. Uh, um, hosts. (laughs) Pandemic and hosts are two things you can
0: count on. Yeah, you can count on them forever. So (laughs) this new um, season of the FFS show includes more guests, more bespoke Mm -hmm. content for uh, podcast listeners and subscribers, uh, more things you won't hear anywhere else, and hopefully the same old Fun and laughter that we create.
1: Yes. Fun and convincing? laughter.
0: doesn't sound very convincing when I say it. But. We're
1: having fun and laughing at the idea that this is fun and we're laughing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Our last episode was just before Christmas. Mm. And since then, the world of misinformation has only gotten more and more relevant in the news with the whole Spotify business and uh, Neil Young and Joe Rogan and all of that. So the um, awful
0: Christmas gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Joe Rogan's podcast has uh, been... in the news for promoting misinformation about coronavirus uh neil young has taken a stand and removed his music from spotify this podcast is still available on spotify we have to admit still that available. um oh. we are not in the position to make calls like that
1: <laughs> things are awkward with neil young between us and neil young yeah is, it's gonna be really awkward neil he's young. icing us out
0: yeah yeah exactly originally we were going to get neil young to perform an all-new jingle but he's <laughs> rejected
1: us at last minute <laughs> that's right so, Ali, we put out a fact check last week. Can you tell me a little bit about what the fact check was?
0: Yeah, so the fact check was uh, a claim that was in a U.S. alternative media site called Blaze Media, uh-huh. which uh, suggested that data from Scotland was showing that the COVID-19 vaccine had so-called negative efficacy. Um Right. Essentially because data was showing that the case rate is higher among people who have been vaccinated twice than it is among uh, unvaccinated people. That shows that the vaccine is, in fact, causing cases and causing worse right. outcomes of people. People who have the vaccine
1: allegedly are more likely to get COVID. Yeah, more of. likely to get COVID, more likely to have bad outcomes from it. Right, right, right. And, and this is an interesting fact check, actually, because it... um it's this piece of data from Scotland that has had quite a significant impact in other countries especially in yeah. North America.
0: Yeah, well it's an interesting sort of microcosm of things that happen quite often with this sort of data and with this sort uh-huh. of uh, misinformation. Particularly during Covid we've seen a lot of data or videos from other countries being used to back up points. Right. On each side so you know anti-vaxxers will quite often use information from other from other countries. So for example it, this as a this is Scottish data that's being um Right, talked about in the u.s and it's you you see on um reddit threads on twitter uh on in the anti-vax facebook groups it's been kind of published and pushed by prominent anti-vaxxers in the u.s right, but the way right. the reason the reason it's done is because you can it's it's easy to use data from another country because what's less likely to happen is that people will look at the the kind of specifics within it i see so let's talk about this data. Does it? Hmm. Uh, what does the data say? What they've done is they have they have looked at um, the data from Public Health Scotland, which is which publishes the statistics on COVID case rates and outcome rates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They have actu- accurately published that data in terms of the numbers which they have suggested. Although the numbers they suggested were um, experimental and have been updated, but they're broadly in the right place. Uh, sure. The cases at the start of this year in January 2020, the age-standardized positive COVID-19 test rate for unvaccinated people was 424 and the rate for people with two-dose vaccination was 885 so a lot higher Right. well what they said in terms of the data
1: which they jumped off from was accurate what they said about it is not right because the the question here that you put in the fact check is that it's not necessarily about the the, the negative efficacy but it's about the kind of data that they collected right so so what's what are the caveats to what this data is saying that that these groups that are sharing it are not paying attention to
0: what these groups quite often are using and what these promoters use they'll just compare two raw numbers in order to make judgment about the effectiveness of the vaccine even the, the people who put together the public health scotland report said not to do that and it shouldn't be this data shouldn't be used as a way to measure how effective the vaccine is right first of all it's worth mentioning from the, on the top that we know based on, you know, loads of peer reviewed studies that the vaccine is effective. It's effective in stopping you or reducing the impact of COVID-19 and stopping you from having negative, uh, side effects and, and dying. Uh-huh. Um, it also has some uh, efficacy in stopping people from getting the virus in the first place. There's a lot, I mean, studies, numerous studies have suggest, have shown that. Yeah. Comparing the two groups, why that's misleading is because while the data breaks people up into their vaccination status there's loads more potential differences between those groups rather than just that status right right so just to say oh x number of people are vaccinated and and look at the numbers versus y number of people are unvaccinated look at the numbers uh-huh. isn't it's not good statistics
1: yes yeah
0: phs data points us to uh, the uk health security agency who which kind of gave a few examples of why these two groups can't really be accurately compared. Sure. So I'll go through a few of them. The first one is that people who are fully vaccinated broadly may be more likely to be taking the, the virus seriously and then if they had symptoms would be more likely to get tested which means then right. they're more likely to appear in positive case data.
1: Right.
0: Secondly, people who were vaccinated first so will have the highest dose vaccination or two doses, three doses, etc. They were the people who were at biggest risk from COVID-19. So the people who came first obviously it was done by risk potential. So, you know, over 85s, over 95s. People yeah. who were clinically uh, extremely vulnerable yeah so even with an effective vaccine you know no vaccine works 100 percent of the time There right, are right. there's going to be a small proportion of them who will yeah. still end up with significant symptoms they may end up in hospital they may have like comorbidities which mean that they they have another illness that's going on at the same time and so covid right. doesn't help it so that's a pro- proportion of them will still end up in hospital and some unfortunately will still end up dying the other thing is that people who have not been vaccinated are probably more likely to have caught COVID-19 already. Okay. And if we know that catching COVID-19 does give you a measure of natural immunity. We're not sure, still not 100% sure how long that lasts, but it certainly has some impact in terms of your likelihood of getting COVID for a period after you have got it. Yeah, And another reason is that people who are vaccinated and people who are unvaccinated have different, different sort of behaviours. For example, people who are vaccinated may be more likely to be reinteracting interacting with society a bit more. They might be like, okay, so I'm vaccinated now. I feel more comfortable to go out, go to the pub, go to this, go to that. You know, right. they've got their vaccine certificate so they can go to big events and, you know. Right. So then that might put them in more risk from catching COVID-19. Sure. And finally, it's quite difficult to know exactly how many people are unvaccinated in Scotland. <laughs> That's one problem. Right. There's evidence to suggest the number of unvaccinated people who have the virus has been undercounted for the reasons okay. we stated already and also proportion of the public who have not been vaccinated it's possibly been overcounted.
1: Okay, right. So
0: that would mean that the rates, actual rates of infection among unvaccinated people, would be higher than is shown in that data. So ultimately, what verdict did you, did you give to this claim? We ended up giving it a false. So while the data that they use in the claim is broadly speaking, it's the correct data. Uh-huh. what they extrapolate from it is completely wrong. So oh, right right right. That's quite a common thing in this in these circles is to get uh, very sure. specific out of context data and use it to prove a point which is not does not um, come
1: from the data. I think this week we have a brand new interview, Is sorry mm-hmm podcast relaunch. Um, and this time around, you spoke to Jenna Corduroy, who's a journalist for Open Democracy uh, UK. And she's in the investigations team over there. So what did you all talk about? How, how was that chat? Yeah, it was great. It
0: was great to have Jenna on. I spoke to her about the lack of transparency in the UK government, um, how difficult it's been to as a journalist, uh, working with freedom information law to try and find out information. The Secretive Clearinghouse, which is a quasi-government department that helps to coordinate FOI responses and how impact that has. And also some of the lack of transparency around Partygate and The Report, which has been released by Sue Gray. What means do the government use to shield themselves from transparency?
2: Speaking from my experience, um, because I tend to specialise in freedom of information requests, where you can put a request into um, government departments to to disclose information like data. Um, I think it, the way they shield themselves there is by not responding to requests or refusing them on the most illogical grounds. Um, uh, also, another way of how the government um, shields themselves from transparency is not publishing data in a timely uh, fashion. So we have... Um, with at least central government departments, we've got government transparency data. So things include like uh, publishing ministerial meetings and what gifts and hospitality they've accepted. But often that's published late and sometimes it's incomplete or we don't, we just have sort of the bare, you know, details. and I mean, it's not a particularly great scenario considering all the lobbying scandals that we've had recently.
0: Obviously, the rules in Scotland and England are slightly different, but we know that the thrust of the law is to kind of... To sort of open up and increase transparency, but do you think ministers and people in government now are anti-FOI and anti-transparency?
2: It's looked upon quite negatively within within government, and I think that that's you know that that could possibly extend to Scotland as well. But I think, uh, in my experience, um, it, it's it's not I think a positive thing for them. Um, I mean, we had Tony Blair when he introduced the Freedom of Information Act. He he called, it, you know when he reflected upon that. He called himself what a foolish, irresponsible nincompoop. Um, So that really sets the tone for things of the years uh, years to come. Um, But we also had very recently a government minister, uh, I think from the Department of Business. Um, He he sort of stood up in um, I think it was the House of Lords and and called the Freedom of Information Act a truly malign piece of legislation. I mean, that's from a government minister. I mean, comments like that is incredibly unhelpful.
0: Not only is there the way they uh, treat FOI but it's also making policy plans in ways that are, are difficult to pick up via FOI?
2: That's correct. Time and time again where I've looked at um, government ministerial meetings data and then thought oh, okay this this meeting is interesting let me probe a bit more and then I put in a freedom of information request to get hold of agendas, minutes of the meetings, um, attendee lists, and so on. And time and time again, you'd be surprised, perhaps even shocked, that they haven't minuted meetings, or uh, there doesn't appear to be much information that's been written down, which um, I don't quite understand how you can run an effective government when you don't write down things like minutes. I mean, it's basic, isn't
0: it? I think one of the things... uh you've been really interested in uh, some of the work you've done on is the so-called Clearinghouse, the uh, quasi-government department. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if you could explain what that is and explain why it's such an important part of this kind of conversation.
2: Within uh, the Cabinet Office, uh, the Cabinet Office is actually, uh, it has got it looks after FOI policy. So within the Cabinet Office, it's got a unit called the Clearinghouse, which is, Uh, According to the government, it coordinates freedom of information responses across Whitehall. So, for instance, if you send a freedom of information request to the Department of Transport, that might be flagged to the clearinghouse, uh, especially if it's so-called sensitive, or if you send the same request to the Department of Transport and, let's say, to another uh, government department because those requests might be flagged to the clearinghouse because they're considered round robins. And the clearinghouse, which we don't know how many people are in it, what their expertise are, and so on, but they give advice to other government departments on how those uh, requests should be responded to. Now, so the government says, okay, we need this unit because of we need coordination, we need consistency with our FOI releases. I, I mean, you know, you might think that's that's a reasonable. But really, it, it's not. It's far from it. So this unit, um, until we published our investigation into Clearinghouse, this, this unit has been operating completely without scrutiny and accountability for years. It's been in place since 2004. They, um, the government has hard, you know, it's hardly published any information about it. It wasn't until we published our investigation that they decided to, oh, let's publish something about the clearinghouse on the government website. We've discovered that um, really the requests that are being flagged to this Clearing House are mainly from journalists, campaigners, activists, researchers. So it feels like we're being singled out. Um, and another thing that strikes me, Uh, with a lot of concern is that the advice I've seen from the Clearinghouse to other government departments is poor, it's really poor, it's brief and poor Um, and government departments have just followed it. Um, So that, you know, if you're given poor advice and you follow it, that's only going to add to the frustration to the requester. Um, It has caused delays. Um, I've seen email chains where... um, the Clearinghouse is not responding to other government departments' uh, emails. Um, I've seen the Clearinghouse, um, or we've got it in, in black and white, circulates uh, lists of FOI requests around Whitehall, and they contain the names of um, journalists. This this has operated without any transparency whatsoever.
0: Could it be said it's sort of like running uh, interference for the government?
2: I believe it interferes with with, with requests. I really do.
0: I'm going to uh, link around this conversation to the ongoing Partygate scandal and the report that's just come out this week or partly come out this week from Sue Gray but her role in government is ironically not a very
2: transparent one. I've read many pieces where you know she it's said that she's a very you know force to be reckoned with but I don't I don't see that as being an independent role really we needed someone to to be away from from that that culture that scene, but also from a freedom of information sort of being from that world. Um, I am concerned about Sue Gray's reputation in terms of transparency as well, and um, and her role in freedom of information requests. At Open Democracy, we published two stories very recently on um, I suppose. Sue Gray's uh, role in in freedom of information so um, a campaigner uh, who has been seeking justice over the infected blood scandal uh, sent a freedom of information request to the treasury which uh, then was actually flagged to the to the cabinet office the clearing house and within those emails um, we saw the clearing house consulting with Sue Gray um, and who I think Sue Gray was not really in favour of releasing the information that this campaigner was trying to get.
1: Okay, so that was your chat with Jenna there, Ali. That was a brilliant conversation. Fascinating stuff. I I didn't know half of that stuff about clearing house, and it's all really interesting and worrying at the same time. Yeah, Um, a little bit. Yeah, so it was really good to hear, and, and Jenna's work is brilliant. So do go do go check her stuff out over at Open Democracy. Um, yeah. Now, we have one more segment in the podcast mm. today. Um, we wanted to have a segment where we take a fact check from you, the listener, from colleagues and coworkers, and, and we, we bring it here to the podcast and we talk about it here. We try to figure out how much truth there is to it. This week, because it's our first week back, I thought it would be a good idea if I brought you something to fact check I'm from Brazil and I, one of the earliest kind of school memories I have is from a teacher in Brazil telling me the food production in Brazil for like a year's worth of food production in Brazil Uh can feed the whole world for four years.
0: It's interesting that you say that, Sam, because I coincidentally (laughs) have been looking into that
1: exact thing. I'm so glad that you just happened to be looking into this because oh. I've, I having heard this as a child, I can say I then took no further steps to fact checking this information. <laughs> yeah. And for <laughs> the last 32 years I've been spreading it. <laughs> so good, good. yeah. Well, I so it be, I least be very helpful.
0: Yeah. yeah. I can shed some light on the issue. Okay. Um, the first thing I think it's worth uh, mentioning is that as far as I can tell. Yeah. It's not true currently today. It's not true anyway. Okay. Um, from the, 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 statistics around these things are, it's fair to say not 100% robust, but there are, there is good data that's collected by the UN on food production. Sure. Um, and, uh, the way it's stated that robust data that's comparable from 2019 showed that Brazil produced around 10% of the world's food. Okay. Right. Um, we also, there's also a study that was done by the state-run research agency, which is called Embrapa. Uh-huh. Um, they found that farmers in Brazil fed 10% of the world's population last year. Right. So using, extrapolating from that suggests to me that that's, it's not, <laughs> they do, if they can cover 10% from one year, they can't cover four years from one year, if you right. see what I mean. Yes, yeah, So yeah,
1: yeah. yeah.
0: Unfortunately, I can't say for, for exactly sure at the exact point when you were told that what yeah. the proportion of
1: Brazil's food, the food we yes.
0: uh, were producing was, but it certainly seems in recent years that it's not true. Not um, case, Brazil yeah. is one of the world's biggest food producers. Um, uh-huh. China appears to be the highest. Okay. Um, and India, I think is second. Then Brazil is third, depending on how you view it. If the production of food is done by weight. It's also measured by value. Right. And Brazil's production uh, by weight is higher than it is its production by value. Yeah, but also it's a but it's a very interesting subject contextually because uh-huh. obviously Brazil during the pandemic has slid back into quite significant food insecurity. Yes, areas of Brazil. So it's a country that one of the world's biggest food producers. Right, and right. yet many people in Brazil live, yeah, with food insecurity. Well,
1: it's interesting because I think that's that might've been the exact point that my teacher back in like primary school was making yeah. was that, you know, it's, it, I lived in Sao Paulo and, and you see a kind of stark, um, you know, like difference people living in the streets, people, you know, like giant, like shanty towns and favelas, but also mm-hmm. some of the richest kind of, you know, like condos like you've ever seen. So there's a huge like disparity in terms of wealth. And I think her point was, to the effect of like, look, we're, being, we're able to feed so much of the world or, you know, the world this many times, yeah. but not able to feed ourselves. You know, I think that was the kind of point that, that she was trying to make, which I guess could still stand in a certain Definitely way.
0: Still yeah, stands. The Tory MP Marco Longhi, who is uh-huh. a trade envoy to Brazil, he said just the end of last year that Brazil produces 25% of the planet's foods. Okay, Full fact, uh, our friends in uh, England, the UK. Yeah, looked into this and found that his statistics were wrong. And they tried; they asked him where the figure came from, and they couldn't find it. Okay, but searching Google for the question found a 2005 essay that was submitted by an, a high school student from Iowa, huh. but doesn't but doesn't source that 25 percent figure. So, wow. Hopefully, he didn't get it from that oh uh, website. But it that could have been me. That,
1: that have, could have like... been you. <laughs> also, would like to extend. You're like a, a kind of fact checking, like fairy who like showed up when I had a question. So,
0: yeah, that was a coincidence. You have to say
1: that was a perfect coincidence. We're just walking down the street, and uh, I'd like to say to the listener if you have a fact that you want checked, something that you haven't managed to check, yeah, or something that you've been lazy about checking, like I have, and you've been just spreading misinformation <laughs> left and right, yeah, then. Get in touch with us. You can reach us on social media.
0: Yep. Or you can go to fatcheck at ferret.scot if you want to email there. Perfect. Um, yeah. Anything you've ever wondered, uh, if there's ever been a claim that's sort of stuck in your head for many years, you've always wondered, like, is that true? We will do our best to have a look into it. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the first of the new season of the FFS show. Um, Thank you to Jenna for uh, being our first interviewee and for her insights.
1: Keep reading our fact checks. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. But also, if you don't know much about The Ferret, go look up theferret.scot. We have regular investigations and reports from an amazing group of journalists.
0: Yep. And remember, you can get in contact with us on all of the popular social media platforms. You can email us with any suggestions at factcheckattheferret.scot. And we will see you in two weeks with another fantastic podcast.